This podcast was funded by and developed in collaboration with Almyland Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast, the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, is on discussions about rare kidney stone disease. And it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Amy Krambach. Dr. Krambach is the Michael O. Koch Professor of Urology at Indiana University and at IU Health. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm just going to go over a couple of learning objectives before we get right into the uh, sort of the meat of our discussion. But our learning objectives are that at the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to interpret metabolic evaluations for patients with stones, determine when to genetically test patients with stones, and finally, to analyze current gene panels available and options for patients. So Amy, my first question to you is, um, as we try and define rare kidney stone disease, what types of stones or medical conditions are categorized as rare kidney stones? Well, actually, technically, anything other than a common calcium oxalate or hydroxyapatite or uric acid stone is considered rare and make up about less than 1% of all stone disease in the community. Um, you know, prior work has made struvite, brushite, and cysteine stones seem like they're more common due to selection bias. Urologists see the tip of the iceberg or more likely to treat struvite or brushite stones. Um, so rare stones tend to recur and seem like they're more common than they really are. However, the Rare Kidney Stone Consortium, which is supported by the NIDDK, considers primary hyperoxaluria, dent disease, formerly known as dense disease, cystinuria, and APRT deficiency as high-risk rare stone diseases. So if these stones really are only account for actually less than 1% of all stones, why is it important to recognize and diagnose rare kidney stone disease? Well, the four disorders that I listed, primary hyperoxaluria, dent disease, cystinuria, and APRT, are not only uncommon, but they also carry a high risk of multiple recurrent stone events with their associated pain and morbidity. So the patients can suffer quite a bit. However, I think more importantly, all four of those diseases pose a very high risk of progressive kidney stone disease with ultimate renal failure if they're not properly identified and treated. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned the Rare Kidney Disease Consortium. What is that? Well, it's a consortium that facilitates a cooperative exchange of information and resources among investigators, clinicians, patients, and researchers in order to improve care and outcomes for patients with rare kidney stone disease. Um, the Rare Kidney Stone Consortium promotes readily availability of diagnostic testing, pooling of clinical experiences, and availability of tissue banks in order to advance the science. The director and the co-director of the consortium are Drs. Don Milliner and John Leesky at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, with Drs. David Goldfarb from NYU and Vitor Edverson from Reykjavik, Iceland, to round out the team. 
if you have more information or want to find out more about the Rare Kidney Stone Consortium, there is a website. It's at www.rarekidneystones.org. And the website is really quite friendly. It's friendly to patients and physicians. So that consortium is made up of um, nephrologists as well as urologists? Yes, and some basic scientists as well. So in our objectives, we discussed a little bit about uh, genetic tests and what genetic tests are available to assess rare kidney stone diseases. Well, the Alinum Act program was developed to reduce barriers to genetic testing and counseling. Alinum provides financial support for the program, but tests and services are performed by independent third parties, such as Invitae, for example. Um, the healthcare professionals must confirm that patients meet criteria for testing, and in exchange, Alinum receives all the de-identified patient data from the program and contact information for healthcare providers who use the program. The program provides gene testing, which is a type of genetic testing that identifies DNA changes or mutations that may lead to genetic conditions. The results of the genetic test can confirm or rule out suspected genetic diseases or help determine the chance of developing or passing on a genetic disease. Genetic counseling is a service provided um, that gives information and support for those who have or may be at risk for genetic conditions. Genetic counseling is available to be performed before, during, or after the genetic testing. If you want more information on the Alinum Act, uh, that can be found through Alinum's website at www.alnylam.com. There are two different panels. There's there, at least there's two different panels that I personally use. There's the primary hyperoxaluria panel that just tests for the three genetic deficiencies that go along with primary hyperoxaluria. There's also a nephrolithiasis panel that tests for 35 different genes associated with hereditary forms of stone disease, which will cover the specific conditions we'll be discussing in the following section. So which patients should, should clinicians consider for such genetic testing in general? Well, when I think about who needs to be tested, I use the following criteria. Any child with a stone or a history of stone disease should be tested. Patients who have a strong family history of one or more first degree relatives with stone disease should be tested. And those with recurrent stone disease. So if they've had more than two episodes, they should be tested. So from a practical standpoint, how does one, how do, we, how do you order a genetic test? So genetic tests can be ordered directly by the patients by visiting the Invitae website. They can just order it on their own or through their physician. The phys physician's office can contact Invitae and they will provide the kits and results at no charge. There is also a genetic counseling and counselor that's available through Invitae to US residents on the website. So that, that was my biggest barrier is I would order the tests and I would get the results and there would be an unusual gene and I didn't know what to do with that. Um, by using the genetic counselor, it makes it very easy. easy. So of the, some of the things that you mentioned before, I remember from my days as a resident, uh, cystinuria and, and cysteine stones. 
as being something that we were at least that was something that we were made aware of but you know just a little more detail on what is cystinuria and and who's affected by it yeah it, it is one of the more commonly noted rare diseases of kidney stone cystinuria is an autosomal recessive disease um, and it's a defect in the renal reabsorption of cysteine and three other dibasic amino acids ornithine lysine and arginine a non-cystinuric patient will only excrete about 0.4% of the filtered cysteine in their urine every day. But a cystinuric, they can't reabsorb it. So they will actually excrete 100% of the filtered cysteine a day. The only clinical or phenotypic manifestation of the disease is cysteine stone formation. Malabsorption of the other amino acids appear to cause no clinical ill effects. Uh, cystinuria affects about 1% to 2% of all surgical stone patients and up to 5% of all pediatric stone patients. So now how do, you, how do you diagnose cystinuria and who should, we, who should we be suspicious of that has the condition? Well, cystinuria is actually uh, one of the more easy conditions to diagnose. It's frequently diagnosed just on the stone analysis. Most stones will be 100% cysteine. Occasionally, you'll see a stone mixed with calcium phosphate, but that's not common. Often, the urologist can diagnose the cystinuria in the operating room at the time of endoscopic stone fragmentation, because if you laser a stone that is of cysteine, you will have a release of a pungent sulfur odor as the disulfide bonds are ruptured by the laser. So it's, it's very characteristic. If you've ever smelled this, you will remember it. Um, the stones are generally yellow in appearance and they're highly crystalline in shape. They, they're very, almost pretty. They're quite like a crystal. Uh, occasionally individuals with cystinuria have been diagnosed on urine microscopy even. If someone looks at the urine under a microscope, they might see the six-sided hexagonal crystal uh, under the microscope. Um, genetic testing is actually not necessary to make the diagnosis of cystinuria. So how do we treat cystinuria? So all patients with cystinuria should undergo a special 24-hour urine analysis. Just checking 24-hour urine analysis won't work. You have to have a cysteine capacity panel. The capacitance of the urine is positive it, um, on this panel, and that's actually a good thing. That means that the urine is not super saturated with cysteine, and it can hold more cysteine. If you get your report back and it shows that the capacitance is negative, it means that the urine is oversaturated and is forming um, cysteine crystals. The goal of therapy is to increase the capacitance on the 24-hour urine to a positive value to prevent more stone formation. Capacitance is far more sensitive and specific for cystinuria treatment than cysteine supersaturation. So most people will not use supersaturation, but capacitance. In order to increase the urinary capacitance of cystinuric patients, they're asked to drink very large quantities of fluids, much greater than a regular stone former. They should be taking in about three to four liters of fluid a day. We also ask them to reduce their salt and protein intake, which can affect the urinary capacitance. And they need to be on a low salt, low protein, high fluid diet. Oftentimes we'll alkalinize the urine with more fruits and vegetables or certain medications such as bicarbonate or citrate. Um, and that's considered the cornerstone of therapy. 
For the more severely affected patients, thiola binding drugs, such as teopronin or D-penicillinine, are prescribed in addition to the aforementioned measures. These drugs bind the cysteine and make it more soluble. So in general, the medications are not well tolerated. So we try to keep those for a last line therapy. And then when we do start prescribing the medications, we want to give them the lowest dose possible. So we start with low doses and then adjust the medication up based on their 24 hour urine studies. So uh, I guess my next question is, sort of twofold is what's the prognosis for patients with cystinuria and I guess in your experience how likely are they to be compliant with the recommendations of the high fluid intake etc. Even though we have recognized treatments for cystinuria compliance is quite difficult and I think it's a, a very strenuous regimen that we ask our patients to adhere to. You know, it's a genetic condition and cystinuria is present from birth and it persists throughout the patient's lifetime, so there's no chance that they're going to be cured from it. Um, however, kidney stone formation can occur at any point, so they may be forming stones from infancy all the way up to um, their first stone being in adulthood. Uh, there are some patients with cystinuria, about 1 to 10 percent, depending on the source, who will never form a kidney stone despite very high urine cysteine concentrations. Um, but the non-compliance of therapy is really our biggest problem. And the non-compliant patient um, who has multiple recurrent stone episodes may have a high risk of chronic kidney disease varying from 30 to 75 percent that can progress on to renal failure. So it's so important that these patients get tuned in with a support network and that they get tuned into an active therapy to prevent disease progression. So I mentioned that I remembered from my days of training cystinuria and cysteine stones, but you also mentioned APRT um, as a rare uh, kidney stone disease. What is APRT? So you're going to make me say it, huh? <laughs> it's, it's adenine phosphoribosyl transferase deficiency, um, and they form dihydroxyadenine stones. So we just call it APRT for short. It's an autosomal recessive disorder. It really only affects 0.5 in 100,000 Caucasians and Japanese populations, but it's 8.9 per 100,000 in the Icelandic population, so much more common there. Um, they lack adenine phosphoribosyl transferase, and it results in difficulties with breaking down purines. And as a result, there's an accumulation of 2,8-dihydroxyadenine, or DHA. DHA is poorly soluble and results in stone formation and kidney injury. Interestingly, which I, I find this disease fascinating, 70% of the affected patients have red hair, or they have a relative with red hair. And the stone itself is red. It's a bright red stone. So um, this red color seems to be part of the genetic deficiency. Other than kidney stones and chronic kidney disease, these patients may infrequently complain of ocular pain because the deposits can go in the um, ocular nerve. In infancy, the parents may notice that the baby has a reddish discoloration of the diaper, and that's actually the, the um, substance in the urine. So is this something that is uh, typically suspected um, 
or is it something that is suspected when one sees a red stone and you know, how do you diagnose it? Well, that is a problem with DHA is that it is um, often misdiagnosed. So DHA stones are radiolucent on KUB. So um, you, they're like a uric acid stone. You won't be able to identify it and you'll need either an ultrasound or a CT scan. Oftentimes the stones are smaller in size and patients suffer recurrent stone passage episodes. They'll talk about passing stones weekly or daily. But in some cases, about 30% of the time, they actually need surgically, in, surgical intervention. Um, the diagnosis of APRT is definitive if DHA is noted on a stone analysis. So if you get your stone analysis back and it says dihydroxyadenine stone, you have your diagnosis. However, most stone labs don't test for it and they will mistakenly read it as uric acid. Um, so if you have a young patient with decreased renal function or chronic kidney disease, and they have like a reddish radiolucent stone with a diagnosis of uric acid stones, then you should be suspicious for APRT activity um, or deficiency, and you need to have their red blood cells tested for APRT activity. However, this test is not widely available. So usually the next step would be to contact the RKSD or the Rare Kidney Stone Consortium um, to initiate genetic testing, which will render the definitive diagnosis. In some instances, the disease has been diagnosed on urine microscopy because they have this characteristic Maltese cross appearance in the urine. I have not personally seen that. Um, and although not necessary for the diagnosis, some patients who undergo a renal biopsy as part of their chronic kidney disease evaluation have been noted to have the DHA crystals in the tubular lumen of their kidney, and they'll have significant amounts of inflammation and scarring. So basically, you need to have a high index of suspicion. If you see the red stone, they get a diagnosis of uric acid. They're having multiple recurrent stone events and they're young, you should request genetic testing. So can APRT deficiency be treated? Yes, it's actually treated quite easily with allopurinol. Allopurinol inhibits xanthine dehydrogenase. It needs to be dosed at about 600 to 800 milligrams uh, daily, and that's highly effective. Uh, allopurinol therapy can even improve renal function and prevent recurrence in patients who undergo a renal transplant. Uh, besides lifelong allopurinol therapy, patients are encouraged to drink two to two and a half liters, so not nearly as much as we asked our cystinurics to do, um, and to maintain a low purine diet. And a low purine diet basically means avoid all meats, including poultry and fish. How about long-term outcome for these patients, uh, assuming they're properly treated? Well, if they're appropriately diagnosed and treated, patients with APRT can eliminate stone events and prevent renal failure just by simply altering their diet and taking medication. But unfortunately, patients are often misdiagnosed and treatment is delayed until they are evaluated by a specialist for refractory renal failure after transplant. That's unfortunately the number one mode of diagnosis for these patients. So by increasing awareness of APRT, we hope to decrease the progression to ESRD and actually cure these patients of their condition. Okay, so another rare kidney stone disease that you mentioned uh, was dent disease. Um, 
I'm sure that many people on this podcast have never heard of dent disease, uh, let alone treated a patient with it. So tell us a little bit more about this condition, and then we'll get into the diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, I, I would agree dent disease is one of the far more difficult ones to identify and understand, um, and mainly because we know so little about it. It's an extremely rare X-linked disease that almost exclusively affects males. However, a few cases of mild forms of the disease have been reported in females. The disease can be further divided into dent one, which is the majority of cases, and dent two, depending on the specific defective gene. The clinical manifestation is recurrent stone disease with significant proteinuria and mild to severe chronic kidney disease. So I'm assuming it is, well, I shouldn't assume anything, but is it difficult to diagnose dent disease? And who, who do you suspect the condition in? Um, in order to even go forth with any sort of a diagnostic uh, protocol? Well, I, I am highly aware of dent disease, and in my career, I've only diagnosed one patient. So you really have to have a high index of suspicion and be diligent. But dent disease is often misdiagnosed until the patient presents to a specialist for chronic kidney disease or ESRD. I suspect it in male patients who complain of foamy urine, because that's usually from the large amount of protein in the urine. Uh, and patients who have a stone composition that is calcium-based, um, that would be a prerequisite, but that's actually not very helpful because most stones are calcium-based. Uh, the diagnosis of dense disease can be made on a standard metabolic uh, stone evaluation with 24-hour urine studies. They will typically manifest proteinuria about one to two grams per day with at least half of the protein being a low molecular weight protein such as retinol binding protein or alpha-1 microglobulin. They'll also have mild to moderate hypercalciuria, hematuria, amino acid urea, and hypophosphatemia. Patients will often have nephrocalcinosis, so multiple small embedded stones throughout their kidney on their CT scan. And some patients with dent disease may have a short stature, short stature or soft bone with osteomalacia. So if dense disease is suspected, a genetic test is needed to make a definitive diagnosis and testing again can be ordered through the RKSD. So just to recap, if you have a male who's of younger age with multiple recurrent kidney stone events, calcium-based stone, and you notice moderate to severe proteinuria, uh, then have the suspicion that this patient may have dent disease. So our last two conditions um, we had treatments for. How about dent disease? Can we treat it? Unfortunately, we can't. Um, we, we, can, we can do supportive measures, but there's no definitive treatment because we really don't understand how the genetic defects in dent disease results in renal scarring, nephrocalcinosis, stone disease, and renal failure. Um, and therefore, we can't develop a definitive treatment because we don't understand it. We do know that patients have responded well to thiazide-like diuretics to decrease their hypercalciuria and subsequent stone formation, as well as renal protective diets and referral to a nephrologist to watch them closely. Renal transplant appears to be curative for the condition if the patient progresses to that point. So overall prognosis when we see this? 
Um, since the disease is so rare and the severity varies from presentation as an infant to presentation as late, late as uh, late adulthood, there really is no known therapy and no known prognosis that we can even predict for the patients. In general, early presentation poses a more severe disease and worse prognosis than presentation later than in adulthood. Okay, well, we have one more rare kidney stone disease that I, I'd like you to tell us about, and that is uh, primary hyperoxaluria. Yes, yeah, so uh, primary hyperoxaluria, I think all of us have learned about this and studied about it for our board exams. Um, it is the most severe of the hereditary causes of stone disease. It's an autosomal recessive disorder of glyoxylate metabolism in the liver. This meta metabolic defect results in severe overproduction of oxalate that must be excreted somehow from the body, so it's excreted by the kidneys. When the oxalate combines with calcium, you get stone formation and severe nephrocalcinosis occurs. And these stones aren't just free-floating in the kidney, they're actually attached to the tissue and the urethelial lining. There are three types of primary hyperoxyuria, and it depends on the specific enzyme affected. You have type one, which is the most common and most severe, and it is not uncommon for these patients to progress on to end-stage renal disease. Um, there's also type two, and then type three is the least severe, and patients may maintain normal renal function well into late adulthood. So how do we diagnose primary hyperoxaluria? So um, since pH is a genetic disease like the others, it is present from birth. However, it may not be um, noticeable until adulthood. The majority of patients are diagnosed before the age of 10 years. However, in less severe forms of the disease, diagnosis may be delayed until 30 to 50 years of age. I actually diagnosed a 52-year-old uh, two years ago based on their urine studies. The primary symptoms is recurrent calcium oxalate stone formation and the mean age of end-stage renal disease is around 33 years of age. So most people do present much younger. I recommend testing any child who presents with a calcium oxalate stone. Um, on 24-hour urine studies, patients will have two to eight times the normal urinary oxalate level in the absence of any bowel disease. So a good rule of thumb in young adult patients or teenagers or later adult patients is if you do a 24-hour urine study and the oxalate is greater than 80 millimoles per deciliter in the absence of any bowel disease or gastric bypass, then perform further testing to rule out pH because it really should not be that high. A diet is unlikely to drive your oxalate that high. Definitive diagnosis is most often uh, made by DNA screening for genetic mutations. Occasionally a liver biopsy may be needed to confirm an enzyme deficiency, but not often. And the patient may also need an ophthalmologist exam to assess for crystal deposits in the retina or a bone marrow biopsy in some cases to assess for marrow replacement with oxalate but that's generally just an advanced disease. So I'm guessing that the treatment for primary hyperoxaluria is a little different than the more traditional hyperoxaluria that we see. 
for certain. Um, the only definitive treatment for pH is removal of the patient's native liver and transplantation, which is actually curative for the patients. This is often done in conjunction with a renal transplant when the patient becomes dialysis dependent. About 30 to 50% of pH patients are pyridoxine or B6 responsive because B6 is a cofactor for the AGT enzyme um, that converts oxalate to uh, its other more soluble forms. If the patient is B6 responsive, it infers a better overall prognosis. So patients are also encouraged um, to be tested on B6 protocols. So generally you would refer them to a specialist who, such as a nephrologist that specializes in primary hyperoxaluria and test them on B6. Even if they're not B6 responsive, we ask them to drink plenty of fluid to dilute out the oxalate, so three to four liters per day. Uh, they may also benefit from potassium citrate therapy to um, increase their citrate levels, as well as phosphate binders. A low oxalate diet has not been shown to be beneficial and is not helpful for these patients because the oxalate is coming from their liver. So you mentioned that it's not unusual to perform combination renal and liver transplants. How many patients with primary hyperoxaluria actually develop renal failure and require uh, a combination transplant? Well, we're doing better, but it's not perfect. Um, like I said earlier, B6 responsiveness means a better prognosis. Um, if you're B6 unresponsive, 70% will progress to end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis or transplant by the age of 60. However, with early diagnosis and individualized treatments, we have been able to improve the statistics. 30 years ago, 50% of patients developed ESRD by 15 years of age and 80% by 30. Now the mean age of ESRD is 30 years of age. So we've, we've um, prolonged the time to ESRD and we've decreased the number of patients who go on to ESRD. So it's still a, a, um, a serious diagnosis, but I think we're getting better at treating the patients. Amy, that was really an excellent uh, review uh, and discussion about four different types of rare kidney stone diseases. Um, I was wondering if you had any final thoughts for our listeners before we finish up. Yes, I would say just um, be on the lookout for these patients. It, it does require a high index of suspicion on the part of the urologist and the nephrologist. Um, and don't be afraid to test patients. You, you need to test many patients and get a negative result before you find that one person that you can help. So reach out to the resources that are there. Um, the Alinum and, uh, and Vitae have been excellent resources and don't be afraid to contact them. Well, Dr. Amy Cranbach, I would like to thank you so much for spending this time with us and giving us this uh, really great discussion about uh, an unusual yet uh, important topic, rare kidney stone disease. I'd like to thank our audience for listening. Uh, and as always, uh, for more information, you can visit our website at auanet.org university. Thanks, everybody.